I had silly thoughts this week of tackling two chapters today. I even uh, had Seth in the study and I said, Seth, what do you think? Think we can do this? Yeah, I think you can do this. Well, Seth, I've changed my mind. I'm just going to go back to one chapter. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel chapter 19. And let's give our attention once again to the reading of God's holy, His powerful, His infallible, His inerrant word. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to, his, to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king's sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. And then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Well, Saul then sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed, and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with the clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he, he, He's sick. And then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, and behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? And Michael answered Saul, Well, he said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, or Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth, and it, <coughs> excuse me, and it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. And then Saul sent messengers to David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, Samuel standing head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers. And they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time. And they also prophesied. Then he went to Ramad and came to the great well that is in Seku. 
And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he, as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? The Word of God for the people of God. What's your problem? What's your problem? Have you ever witnessed somebody behaving bad and behaving bad publicly and you just had to stare at them a bit? And, and as you stared at them, they, they in, their, in their anger and in their embarrassment, turn back to you and say, what's your problem? Well, when that's happened to me, and it has happened to me before, I, I, I've attempted to say, do you really want to know? Do you want to know what's wrong with me? Hey, come on, let's go, let's go grab a cup of coffee and let me tell you what's wrong with me. What my problem is, what my basic problem is, what is a human being's basic problem? What is man's basic problem? What is a, a woman's basic problem? The world gives us their answers, right? They give us their answers on a daily basis. They shout them. Some people think that man's problem is that he lacks education. He just doesn't have enough information. So the solution is just give him some education. And that'll take care of things. And once he learns, then everything will be better. Others would say it's that we are powerless. And that there's the guy up on top. You know, and, and, and he's oppressing us and he's pushing us down, or they are, the power forces above us are, and we're just weak and we're frail and we just need power. Others would say that our problem is that we are shackled by the expectations of others, by the expectations of institutions, by the expectations of families, by the expectations of our bosses, by the expectation of our family members. And, and we, just need to, we just need to be free from those shackles. Free to be who we want to be. Others say that our problem is that we're just not happy. Right? And the greatest virtue of all is to be happiest. It's happiness. So, so let's, let's go for anything that makes us happy. The world gives us those sorts of answers all the time. And there can be something, and let me underline the word something, there can be something to some of those problems, I suppose, but they don't go deep enough. They don't go deep enough. What is man's problem? What is my problem? What is your problem? Well, biblically speaking, we've got two problems. As one evangelist has put it succinctly, we have a bad heart and we have a bad record. We've got a bad heart, and we've got a bad record. Um, bad heart. That is our, our fallen, natural condition as sinners. Our fallen, natural disposition towards sin. Our fallen, natural disposition or bent away from God. That's our, that's our bad heart. 
Theologians call it original sin. It's who, who we are in our core as created, and, and not as created, but as, as fallen. This creation has been twisted. Bad heart. We've also got a bad record. In other words, we've lived out of our hearts. We've revealed our hearts by our thoughts, by our words, by our deeds. We act upon our sinful inclinations. Now, we've got our own unique combination of sinful inclinations, right? Each and every one of us are inclined to this or to that, and that doesn't necessarily match up with other people. I get that. But I also get this. We're all sinners. And we have that natural bent towards sin. And from that natural bent, what comes? Sin. From that fountain of original sin, that, that being bent in towards ourselves and away from God, from that fountain flow our specific sins. We have original sin and we have specific sins. We've got a bad heart and we've got a what? Bad record. We've got a rap sheet, right? And it gets longer and longer and longer day after day after day after day. A bad heart and a bad record. And get this, it's, it's, sin is, is complex comes out of a, a sinful disposition. And then, as it comes out, the more and more it comes out, the more and more it affects everything about us. Our sinful fallen nature means that our emotions are skewed. It means our will to choose this or that is skewed. And it means our thinking, our rationality is skewed. And the more that we practice sin, the more skewed we become. I don't know who I first heard this uh, from, but it's brilliant in its simplicity and its truth. Whoever said it, I just want to give them kudos. And this is the line. Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. And I might add, unless that sin is checked by divine grace, it will also make you stark raving mad. It will drive you to insanity. And we see that in society, don't we? We see how a person bent towards themselves and away from God, how they then begin to practice a particular sin, and that practice becomes a habit, and that habit becomes what we would call an addiction, and that addiction can lead to insanity. I remember, again, I may have told you this story, and the older I get and the more I preach, you're going to hear my illustrations more than once. I was driving to Georgia Tech. I had classes. I was driving through the east side of Atlanta. I was at a stoplight. At the far corner, there's a church, and it's got shrubberies around it, and there's this lady... And she was a lady. She's a human being created in the image of God. But we would call her a bag lady. She had her shopping cart filled with stuff, trash. And she was, and I had my window down, and she's looking at one of those shrubs, and she is cussing that shrubbery out. 
She is blessing it out. I was blushing. She was stark, raving, mad. Sadly. And I'm not saying that every person who's broken mentally, that that's a dir- directly because of a particular sin that they've committed. But I will say that sin, if it becomes habitual, will affect your mind more and more and more and make you more irrational. We see it in society. We see it in literature. And since I teach it every year, I see it every year. I see it in Shakespeare's Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. They have this natural inclination of, of ambition. And they act upon it. And the more they act upon it, the crazier they get, the more insane they get. To the point where she loses her mind and commits suicide, and he marches his way into hell. And we see it in the scriptures. We are smack dab in the middle of one of the most um, famous examples of, of what sin can do to the mind. We've got chapters 18, 19, and 20 uh, together here as a group. And in these chapters, we see Saul's evil descent. His descent into more and more evil. His descent into hatred. His descent into irrationality. First, he becomes jealous of David, right? He, he has fits of rage, right? He loses his temper. But maybe that's just temporary, it's just, okay, he just got mad and just, he couldn't control himself. But, but it's more than just a temporary act of anger. He then begins to scheme against David. And then he orders David's murder. And then he goes after David himself when he just can't get any good help. They're all prophesying. What are they doing that for? They're supposed to get David for me. I just can't get any good help. I'm going to go do it myself. And finally, he utterly hardens in his hatred of David. And as we'll see next time, Lord willing, he almost kills his son Jonathan in the process. Now we've already looked at chapter 18. You remember the long extended story about Stigler and Brown and those two uh, odd that odd couple, the, the German and the, the American who became fast friends, showed us the beautiful friendship that we see between uh, Jonathan and David. We've looked at chapter 18 and we see the point of chapter 18 that David was in the hands of God. The Lord was with him. And that theme, that point continues through chapter 19 and chapter 20. David is in the Lord's hands. The Lord is with him. And the big idea of chapter 19 is this. It's the power of divine protection. That's what we're going to focus on briefly this morning. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the main big idea of chapter 20. And that's the security of a holy covenant. The power of divine protection and the security of a holy covenant. But today, just the power of divine protection. Protection. As we've read the chapter, you will have seen four episodes, four episodes of Paul's hatred towards David and his attempts to kill David. In the first, we see it in verses 1 through 7, right? And we see in verses 1 through 7 that God uses for the protection of David an intercessor, 
right? He uses Jonathan, the friend, the covenanted friend of David, to intercede on David's behalf. It's beautiful. Notice verses 4 and through 6. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. He's, he's standing, making a case for David to his father. And it's a beautiful case. Notice the, the, the points of it. And he said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David. Don't sin, Dad, because he hasn't sinned against you. He hasn't done anything to you. Why are you trying to kill him? And because his deeds have brought good to you. And for, for he took his life in his hands and struck down the Philistine. And there's something going on here, Dad. This is not just by his strength. The Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause. God uses an intercessor on behalf of David. And, and, and it's, it's hard for me not to go where I'm going to go. If God could use an imperfect intercessor like Jonathan interceding to a wicked king like Saul on behalf of David... How much more so, brothers and sisters, will God use the intercession of His very own perfect Son on your behalf to Him for your protection? Jesus is interceding for you right now. Do you know that? Do you recognize Jesus has your name on His lips speaking to the Father Right now. In the second episode, God uses not an intercessor, God uses the own nimbleness and reflexes of David. Saul's throwing his, it seems as if Saul's always got a spear in his hand. What's the matter with you, Saul? And, and the music's playing, and he, and he, and he, goes, he goes mad, and he, and he throws the sword, or the, the spear. And David jumps and eludes it. God used his nimbleness. God used his reflexes. In the third episode, God grants to uh, David a good ally. Her name is Michael. Michael, who like Rebecca of old, who helped her son Jacob trick her husband Isaac. Michael tricks her father's henchman to help her husband David escape out the window out back. And that's a very fascinating scene because she uses idols in the process. And I'm thinking, Michael, why do you even have them in your home? And yet, that which is evil, God uses what? For good. In the last episode, God directly and miraculously intervenes, not once, but four times to thwart Saul's attempts to apprehend David. David, who, by the way, had sought refuge where? With good old Samuel. Seeing that was happening, 
David's fleeing. He's been let down out the window. And where does he go? He doesn't go to Judah. He goes north. He goes to Ramah. He goes to where Samuel is. He goes to where the word of the Lord will be. He seeks refuge in the word of the Lord. Now there's so much that can be said. I've already said a lot about those. Those four episodes. But I want to drive it home with three applications. I'll make them quick. God protected David. God protected David. The protection came from God. Now God used various means, didn't He? He used a friendship. He used reflexes. He used a spouse and her deception. He used things. He worked through means. We call that providence. But also the God of providence who can work through means and does also can do what? He can work miraculously and directly as he did by turning the many messengers that Saul was sending to go apprehend David into prophets. And God miraculously even does that to whom? Saul. And in the process, Saul strips off his robe and symbolically is saying, I'm being stripped of my kingship because it's going to somebody else. God can use means, and He does. And God can use miracle, and He does. We believe in both. We believe in both. When you go to your doctor because you're sick and your doctor prescribes the medicine that works and you're better, who gets the glory? God. He used the doctor and He used medicine. He can use means. But guess what? God can also do what? Bring healing directly. Now that's just one example. We believe in a God of providence and we believe in a God of miracle. But who brings the divine salvation? Who brings the protection? Who brings the blessing? Who's the source of it all? God. Never forget. And always, always, always give Him the glory. Sola Deo Gloria. Second point of application. Divine protection doesn't remove continuing threats of danger. Divine protection does not remove continuing threats of danger. God protected David through Jonathan's intercession. But was there still danger? Oh, yes, there was. God protected David through his nimbleness. Was there still danger? Oh, yes, there was. Ralph Davis puts it wonderfully. Sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but that you're still on your feet in the middle of it. Hear that one more time. 
Sometimes the clearest evidence that God hasn't deserted you is not that you've successfully gotten past your trial, but that you're still standing in the middle of your trial. David was still standing by God's divine protection. God had not forsaken him. Let that sink in, brothers and sisters. When everything's crashing down, when the weights are heavy, when everything seems to be falling apart, and you think, has God abandoned me? And yet, you're still standing. You're still standing. You're still persevering. You're still turning to God. Dear ones, God's with you. He's with you. The Lord is with you. You are in His hands. We, we, we want to see God's hand in being our liberation from a problem. Right? I'm happy to get that. But maybe my standing and endurance... It's God's blessing. Not maybe. It is. Yours is as well. Third and last point. It's madness to go against God. It's utterly insane to fight against the Almighty. I mean, that should be obvious, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? Saul, despite all the evidence that should have told him, stop with your David thing. You know, it's just not getting you anywhere. Just stop it. Let him go. Don't worry about him. Instead of taking that in, what does he do? Let me do Davis again. You can bash yourself against omnipotence, but the success rate is nil. You can bang your head against that brick wall. The wall's going to win. You can bash yourself against divine omnipotence, but the success rate is nil. Remember that quote I said at the beginning? Sin makes you stupid. Makes Lee stupid as well. And I've bashed my head against divine omnipotence, and guess who wins? God. As one commentator said, you know, really what we have here in these episodes is Psalm 2 in miniature. Go to Psalm 2 with me. Saul, who should have been a god under, I mean, a, a king under the covenanting God, is bashing his head against the wall of divine omnipotence. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Did, did Saul plot and scheme? 
Did he rage? Mm-hmm. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Who was Saul going against? The Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God was about to do that with David, right? I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Who, who gets that? Who is the, the one being spoken of ultimately there? It's the Lord Jesus Christ and the nations that are coming to the Lord Jesus Christ through the great missionary endeavors, through the great commission, through the proclamation of the gospel. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, here's the application. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Don't be stupid. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with tremblings. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Saul's irrationality, his, his anger, his hatred, his rage should be a lesson to us all. But Psalm 2 holds out hope for us tin-can Saul's. Psalm 2 tells us to kiss the sun lest he be angry. Psalm 2 says, Blessed are all, are all who take refuge in him. You can seek to bash your head against divine omnipotence. You're not going to win. You're not going to win. Here's the gospel offer to all. To me, to you. Kiss the Son. Take refuge in the Son of David. Take refuge in Jesus Christ. Take refuge in the one who laid down his life for sinners such as you. Take refuge in the one who on the third day rose again. 
Take refuge in the one who ascended into heaven. Take refuge in the one who will one day come again. Take refuge in the one who, if you're offering your prayers unto him right now, he's making intercession for you before the Father. Take refuge in him. And stand in your trials. And don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Let's pray. There is salvation in no other name than in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. O Heavenly Father, by the working of Your Spirit, work in the hearts of every single person here today that we may all bend the knee to King Jesus, that we would all kiss the Son, that we would all, by divine grace, find our refuge in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And Lord, we cry that out. We pray that to you because we know you are a God of omnipotence. You do have the power to grant forgiveness to sinners such as us. So save us. Clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. Enable us to rest in Christ and in Him alone. For we pray it in His name. Amen.